0: Do you see dead people? Not because you're a Bruce Willis superfan, but because visits with G got a little weird after her funeral. Are you often up at 3 a.m. Googling the various ways in which bodies decompose? But you swear it's just harmless research. Are you the first of your friend group to go on a murder tour or rent a haunted location for the night? Then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to the Identity Podcast. pod listeners and welcome back to another episode. This week I wanted to express my love of spooky stories and connect the sharing of spooky tales with the holiday season. You see, it used to be a pretty popular custom, sharing ghost stories around a fire while the wind howled and the snow fell outside. But before we get down to it, I wanted to give a shout out to Arthur and Susan. I'm so glad that you guys are enjoying the podcast. Thanks for all of the suggestions for future episodes. I'll absolutely add them to my ever-growing list. And now, on with the show. If you think about it, this time of year, a time when everything is dormant and cold, is the perfect time to snuggle in a blanket with a mug of hot chocolate and do our level best to scare the living shit out of the ones we love. When I was little, my friends and I would often observe the tradition of sharing spooky tales this time of year. It wasn't something my parents or my grandparents did that I know of, but my friends and I made sure to gather on a night when the snow was coming down in great blue-gray gusts, and the cold moon was obscured by heavy storm clouds, in order to celebrate our yearly custom. We got together until we reached our teenage years, and then we just stopped. No more scary stories during the holidays. It makes me a little sad to remember the first year that it didn't happen after having enjoyed the practice for so many years. Recently, I came across a Smithsonian Magazine article titled A Plea to Resurrect the Christmas Tradition of Telling Ghost Stories, and it reminded me of those times in my youth. The article was written in 2017 by Colin Dickey, and I'll include a link in the show notes so that you can enjoy it too. I think there's something about this time of year that makes us sentimental. Likely because there isn't much else to do but huddle in your house until the snow and cold recedes. I mean, okay, I know that there's a lot to do. There's sledding and skiing and ice skating and building various human forms out of snow, snowball fights. But if you're me, then you spend it huddling. Apparently, the custom of telling ghost stories at Christmas didn't really catch on in America. I guess the Puritans weren't fond, go figure, but was ensconced in the Victorian era in England. That kind of explains why my friends and I embrace the custom— Newfoundland was once a British colony, and a lot of the traditions have hung on. Before we get to the custom of telling ghost stories during the holidays, I think I should provide some background on storytelling in general. Humans are narrative creatures by nature. We enjoy telling stories to get our point across. I'm telling you a story for that very purpose right now. You can bet when people gather together to socialize, there will be storytelling. Of course, you can also count on how ridiculous those stories will be when malt liquor is added. I don't think we need to go all the way back to cave drawings, but I think it's pertinent to know where something came from so that we can track its trajectory. I mean, the custom of telling ghost stories during the holidays stretches back hundreds of years but finding the roots of storytelling itself is the real backbreaker. From reporter.rit.edu, quote, storytelling, the oral tradition dates back to different points in history depending on the culture. These traditions use song, chant, and epic poetry to tell stories that's been handed down from generation to generation and eventually written and published. Myths were also first passed down through word of mouth. There is evidence of written symbols that date back to about 9,000 years ago. The first written stories were manually subscribed, whether on paper, stone, or clay. As described above, writing began as drawings, but over time it changed into script. The current alphabets were derived from older forms of writing, such as the Phoenician alphabet. The transition from oral to written culture overlapped but is predominantly accounted for in ancient Greece where the earliest inscriptions date from 770 to 750 BC. Scholars suggest that the Iliad by Homer is the oldest surviving work in the Greek language that originated from oral tradition according to History of Information. Unfortunately, not all populations were literate so only the educated class was able to read and write stories. This era also brought about the use of plays to tell stories. The next great milestone in communications history is the introduction of mass printing that would make news and other information more readily available to all. Printing helped increase literacy among laypeople. Johannes Gutenberg is considered the inventor of the printing press in the 15th century, However, 600 years before Gutenberg, Chinese monks created a block printing mechanism that set ink to paper using wooden blocks. End quote. Today, tech has really affected the way that we communicate and the way in which we assimilate learned information for our social audience. I don't know how many times I've complained about how tired I am on a Monday morning and gotten a meme of Grumpy Cat from a friend in response. It's sad, really. I don't want to get all squishy about what life was like when I was younger, free from the chains of social media outlets and smartphones. But I will say the technology has been both a blessing and a curse. It's a double-edged sword, for sure. But anyway, let's get on with it. So, now that we know a little bit about where storytelling originated, let's talk about one of the most famous ghost stories of all time, A Christmas Carol. Now, you might be saying, but Janine, A Christmas Carol, isn't a ghost story. It 100% is. Scrooge is visited by three ghosts, the last of which shows him his own demise. Every film rendition of A Christmas Carol that I've ever seen, including the one with the Muppets, was pretty dark. Again, there's something about being huddled in your house on a dark night in front of a roaring fire that gives you just the right amount of goosebumps. From the International League of Antiquarian Booksellers, quote, By Dickens' time, Christmas was not much of a holiday. In fact, for most people, it was still a workday. The Industrial Revolution meant fewer days off for everyone, and Christmas was considered so unimportant that nobody complained. This was thanks to no other than Oliver Cromwell, Lord and Protector of England in the mid-17th century. Cromwell had toiled to eradicate Christmas altogether because the holiday had no scriptural basis. The Bible mentions no holy day other than the Sabbath, and certainly doesn't exhort Christians to celebrate Jesus' birth on December 25th. Furthermore, Cromwell knew that the date of December 25th was shrewdly chosen by early Christian officials who wanted to replace pagan rituals with Christian ones. The day was selected because of its association with two pagan holidays, Yule and Sol Invictus, the birthday of the unconquered sun. Both were celebrated in conjunction with the winter solstice, the longest night of the year. On this night, the boundaries between the physical and spiritual worlds were considered particularly permeable. It was believed that spirits would return to Earth and finish unsettled business, exactly what Jacob Marley does in A Christmas Carol. End quote. I find the point about the boundary between the living and the dead being the thinnest on December 25th. To be particularly interesting, as this is generally believed to be between October 31st and November 1st, or All Souls Day. Dickens' A Christmas Carol is a beloved part of literary canon, but Dickens wasn't the only one telling ghost stories. Christopher Marlowe, Shakespeare, Robert Louis Stevenson, Rudyard Kipling, H.P. Lovecraft, Robertson Davies, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Edith Nesbitt... Elizabeth Gaskell, they all dipped their toe into the Christmas ghost story well, to name a few. So, as a treat, I wanted to share with you a classic ghost story, one that's been told many times to many people around many a roaring fire. I'm speaking, of course, of Anne Barrage's Smee, It's a classic tale that was originally published as part of a collection called Someone in the Room, and that was published in 1931. The story takes place on Christmas Eve and is essentially a story within a story, offering many spine-tingling moments. The bottom line is, it's delightful, and I wanted to make sure that you got the chance to experience it. So, without further ado, I present Smeet. Smee by A.M. Barrage Copyright, Barrage Publishing The book in which this work appears, A.M. Barrage, Smee, and Other Stories, Classics from the Master of Horror, is available on Amazon as part of a collection in paperback or Kindle format. No, said Jackson, with a depreciatory smile, I'm sorry, I don't want to upset your game. I shan't be doing that, because you'll have plenty without me. But I'm not playing any games of hide-and-seek. It was Christmas Eve, and we were a party of fourteen with just the proper leavening of youth. We had dined well, it was the season for childish games, and we were all in the mood for playing them. All that is, except Jackson. Jackson. When somebody suggested hide-and-seek, there was rapturous and almost unanimous approval. His was the one dissentient voice. It was not like Jackson to spoil sport or refuse to do as others wanted. Somebody asked him if he were feeling seedy. No, he answered. I feel perfectly fit, thanks. But, he added with a smile which softened without retracting the flat refusal, I'm not playing hide-and-seek. One of us asked him why not. He hesitated for some seconds before replying, I sometimes go and stay at a house where a girl was killed through playing hide-and-seek in the dark. She didn't know the house very well. There was a servant's staircase with a door to it. When she was pursued, she opened the door and jumped into what she must have thought was one of the bedrooms but she broke her neck at the bottom of the stairs. We all looked concerned, and Miss firmly said, "How awful." And you were there when it happened? Jackson shook his head very gravely. "No," he said, "but I was there when something else happened. Something worse." I shouldn't have thought anything could be worse. "This was," said Jackson, and shuddered visibly. Or so it seemed to me. I think he wanted to tell the story and was angling for encouragement. A few requests which may have seemed to him to lack urgency. He affected to ignore and went off at a tangent. I wonder if any of you have played a game called Smee. It's a great improvement on the ordinary game of hide-and-seek. The name derives from the ungrammatical colloquialism, it's me. You might care to play if you're going to play a game of that sort. Let me tell you the rules. Every player is presented with a sheet of paper. All the sheets are blank except one, on which is written, Smee. Nobody knows who Smee is except Smee himself, or herself as the case may be. The lights are then turned out, and Smee slips from the room and goes off to hide, and after an interval, the other players go off in search, without knowing whom they are actually in search of. One player meeting another challenges with the word Smee, and the other player, if not the one concerned, answers Smee. The real Smee makes no answer when challenged and the second player remains quietly by him. Presently, they will be discovered by a third player, who, having challenged and received no answer, will link up with the first two. This goes on until all the players have formed a chain, and the last to join is marked down for a forfeit. It's a good, noisy, romping game, and in a big house, it often takes a long time to complete the chain. You might care to try it, and I'll pay my forfeit and smoke one of Tim's excellent cigars here by the fire until you get tired of it. I remarked that it sounded like a good game and asked Jackson if he had played it himself. Yes, he answered. I played it in the house I was telling you about. And she was there, the girl who broke... No, no, Miss firmly interrupted. He told us he wasn't there when it happened. Jackson considered. I don't know if she was there or not. I'm afraid she was. I know there were 13 of us, and there only ought to have been 12. And I'll swear that I didn't know her name or think I should have gone clean off with my head when I heard that whisper in the dark. No, you don't catch me playing that game or any other like it anymore. It spoiled my nerve quite a while, and I can't afford to take long holidays. Besides... It serves a lot of trouble and inconvenience to own up at once to being a coward. Tim Vouse, the best of the hosts, smiled around at us. And in that smile, there was a meaning which is sometimes vulgarly expressed by the slow closing of an eye. There's a story coming, he announced. There's certainly a story of sorts, said Jackson. But whether it's coming or not, he paused and shrugged his shoulders, Well, you're going to pay a forfeit instead of playing. Please. But have a heart and let me down lightly. It's not just a sheer cussedness on my part. Payment in advance, said Tim, ensures honesty and promotes good feeling. You are therefore sentenced to tell the story here and now. And here follows Jackson's story, unrevised by me and passed on without comment to a wider public. Some of you I know have run across the Sangstons. Christopher Sangston and his wife, I mean. They're distant connections of mine, at least Violet Sangston is. About eight years ago, they bought a house between the North and South Downs on the Surrey and Sussex border. And five years ago, they invited me to come and spend Christmas with them. It was a fairly old house, I couldn't say exactly of what period, and it certainly deserved the epithet rambling. It wasn't a particularly big house, but the original architect, whoever he may have been, had not concerned himself with economizing in space, and at first you can get lost in it quite easily. Well, I went down for that Christmas assured by Violet's letter that I knew most of my fellow guests and that the two or three who might be strangers to me were all lambs. Unfortunately, I'm one of the world's workers and couldn't get away until Christmas Eve, although the other members of the party had assembled on the preceding day. Even then, I had cut it rather fine to be there for dinner on my first night. They were all dressing when I arrived, and I had to go straight to my room and waste no time. I may even have kept dinner waiting a bit, for I was last down, and it was announced within a minute of my entering the drawing room. There was just time to say hello to everybody I knew, to be briefly introduced to two or three I didn't know, and then I had to give my arm to Miss Gorman. I mentioned this as the reason why I didn't catch the name of the tall, dark, handsome girl I hadn't met before. Everything was rather hurried, and I'm always bad at catching people's names. She looked cold and clever and rather forbidding, the sort of girl who gives the impression of knowing all about men, and the more she shows of them, the less she likes them. I felt that I wasn't going to hit it off with this particular lamb of violets, But she looked interesting all the same, and I wondered who she was. I didn't ask because I was pretty sure of hearing somebody address her by name before very long. Unluckily, though, I was a long way off her at the table. And Miss Gorman was at the top of her form that night. I soon forgot to worry about who she might be. Miss Gorman is one of the most amusing women I know an outrageous but quite innocent flirt with a very sprightly wit which isn't always unkind she can think a half dozen moves ahead in conversation just as an expert can in a game of chess we were soon sparring or rather i was covering against the ropes and i quite forgot to ask her in an undertone the name of the cold proud beauty The lady on the other side of me was a stranger, or had been until a few minutes since, and I didn't think of seeking information in that quarter. There was a round dozen of us, including the Sangstons themselves, and we were all young or trying to be. The Sangstons themselves were the oldest members of the party, and their son Reggie, in his last year at Marlborough, must have been the youngest. When there was talk of playing games after dinner, it was he who suggested Smee. He told us how to play it, just as I have described it to you. His father chipped in as soon as we all understood what was going to be required of us. If there are any games of that sort going on in this house, he said, for goodness sake, be careful at the back stairs on the first floor landing. There's a door to them, and I've often meant to take it down. In the dark, anybody who doesn't know the house very well might think they were walking into a room. A girl actually did break her neck on those stairs about ten years ago, when the Aincis lived here. I asked how it happened. "'Oh,' said Sangston, "'there was a party here one Christmas time, "'and they were all playing hide-and-seek, "'as you propose doing. "'This girl was one of the hiders. "'She heard somebody coming,' ran along the passage to get away, and opened the door of what she thought was a bedroom, evidently with the intention of hiding behind it while her pursuer went past. Unfortunately, it was the door leading to the back stairs, and that staircase isn't straight and almost as steep as the shaft of a pit. She was dead when they picked her up. We all promised for our own sakes to be careful, Ms. Gorman said that she was sure nothing could happen to her since she was insured by three different firms, and her next of kin was a brother whose consistent ill luck was a byword in the family. You see, none of us had known the unfortunate girl, and as the tragedy was ten years old, there was no need to pull long faces about it. Well, we started the game almost immediately after dinner. The men allowed themselves only five minutes before joining the ladies, and young Reggie Sangston went around and assured himself that the lights were all out, all over the house, except in the servants' quarters and in the dining room where we were assembled. We then got busy with 12 sheets of paper, which he twisted into pellets and shook up between his hands before passing them around. 11 of them were blank, and Smee was written on the 12th. The person drawing the latter was the one who had to hide. I looked and saw mine was blank. A moment later, out went the electric lights, and in the darkness, I heard somebody get up and creep to the door. After a minute or so, somebody gave a signal, and we made a rush for the door. I, for one, hadn't the least idea which of the party was Smee. For five or ten minutes, we were all rushing up and down passages and in and out rooms, challenging one another, answering Smee? Smee. After a bit, the alarums and excursions died down. And I guess that Smee was found. Eventually, I found a chain of people all sitting still and holding their breath on some narrow stairs, leading up to a row of attics. I hastily joined it, having challenged and then been answered with silence. And presently, two more stragglers arrived, each racing the other to avoid being last. Sangston was one of them. Indeed, it was he who marked down for the forfeit. And after a little while, he remarked in an undertone, I think we're all here now, aren't we? He struck a match, looked up the shaft of the staircase, and began to count. It wasn't hard, although we just about filled the staircase, for we were sitting each a step or two above the next, and all our heads were visible. Nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. 10, 11, 12, 13, he concluded and then laughed. Dash it all, that's one too many. The match had burned out and he struck another and began to count. He got as far as 12 and then uttered an exclamation. There are 13 people here, he exclaimed. I haven't counted myself yet. Oh, nonsense, I laughed. You probably began with yourself, and now you want to count yourself twice. Out came his son's electric torch, giving a brighter and steadier light, and we all began to count. Of course, we numbered twelve. Sangston laughed. Well, he said, I could have sworn I counted thirteen twice. From halfway up the stairs came Violet Sangston's voice with a nervous trill in it. I thought there was somebody sitting two steps above me. Have you moved up, Captain Ransom? Ransom said that he hadn't. He also said that he thought there was somebody sitting between Violet and himself. Just for a moment, there was an uncomfortable something in the air, a little cold ripple that touched us all. For that little moment, it seemed to all of us, I think, that something odd and unpleasant had happened— and was liable to happen again then we laughed at ourselves and at one another and were comfortable again once more there were only 12 of us and there could only have been 12 of us and there was no argument about it still laughing we trooped back to the drawing room to begin again this time i was smee and violet sangston ran me to earth while i was still looking for a hiding place that round didn't last long, and we were a chain of twelve within two or three minutes. Afterwards, there was a short interval. Violet wanted a wrap fetch for her, and her husband went up to get it from her room. He was no sooner gone than Reggie pulled me by the sleeve. I saw that he was looking pale and sick. Quick, he whispered, while father is out of the way... Take me into the smoke room and give me a brandy or a whiskey or something. Outside the room, I asked him what was the matter, but he didn't answer at first, and I thought it better to dose him first and question him afterward. So I mixed him a pretty dark complexion brandy and soda, which he drank at a gulp and then began to puff, as if he'd been running. I've had rather a turn, he said to me with a sheepish grin. What's the matter? I don't know. You were Smee just now, weren't you? Well, of course I didn't know who Smee was, and while Mother and the others ran into the West Wing and found you, I turned east. There was a deep closed cupboard in my bedroom. I'd marked it down as a good place to hide when it was my turn, and I had an idea that Smee might be there. I opened the door in the dark, felt around, and touched somebody's hand. Smee? I whispered, and not getting any answer, I thought I had found Smee. Well, I don't know how it was, but an odd creepy feeling came over me. I can't describe it, but I felt that something was wrong. So I turned on my electric torch, and there was nobody there. Now, I swear I touched a hand, and I was filling up the doorway of the cupboard at the time so nobody could get out and pass me. He puffed again. What do you make of it? You imagine that you touched a hand, I answered naturally enough. He uttered a short laugh. Of course I knew you were going to say that, he said. I must have imagined it, mustn't I? He paused and swallowed. I mean, it couldn't have been anything else but imagination, could it? I assured him that it couldn't, meaning what I said, and he accepted this but rather with the philosophy of one who knows he is right, but doesn't expect to be believed. We returned together to the drawing room where, by that time, they were all waiting for us and ready to start again. It may have been my imagination, although I'm almost sure it wasn't. But it seemed to me that all enthusiasm for the game had suddenly melted like a white frost in strong sunlight. If anybody has suggested another game, I'm sure we should all have been grateful and abandoned me. Only nobody did. Nobody seemed to like to. I, for one, and I can speak for some of the others, too, was oppressed with the feeling that there was something wrong. I couldn't have said what I thought was wrong. Indeed, I didn't think about it at all. But somehow, all the sparkle had gone out of the fun and hovering over my mind like a shadow was the warning of some sixth sense, which told me that there was an influence in the house which was neither sane, sound, nor healthy. Why did I feel like that? Because Sangston had counted 13 instead of 12, and his son had thought that he had touched somebody in an empty cupboard. No, there was more in it than just that one would have laughed at such things in an ordinary way, and it was just the feeling of something being wrong which stopped me from laughing. Well, we started again, and when we went in pursuit of the unknown Smee, we were as noisy as ever, but it seemed to me that most of us were acting. Frankly, for no reason other than the one I've given you, we'd stopped enjoying the game. I had an instinct to hunt with the main pack, but after a few minutes during which no Smee had been found, my instinct to play winning games, and be first if possible, sent me searching on my own account. And on the first floor of the West Wing, following the wall which was actually the shell of the house, I blundered against a pair of human knees. I put out my hand and touched a soft, heavy curtain. Then I knew where I was. There were tall, deeply recessed windows with seats along the landing, and curtains over the recesses to the ground. Somebody was sitting in a corner of this window, behind the curtain. Ha! I had caught Smee! So I drew the curtain aside, stepped in, and touched the bare arm of a woman. It was a dark night outside, and moreover, the window was not only curtained, but a blind hung down to where the bottom panes joined up with a frame. Between the curtain and the window, it was as dark as the plague of Egypt. I could not have seen my hand held six inches before my face, much less a woman sitting in the corner. Smee, I whispered. I had no answer. Smee, when challenged, does not answer. So I sat beside her, first in the field to await the others. Then, having settled myself, I leaned over to her and whispered, Who is it? What's your name, me? And out of the darkness beside me, the whisper came back. Brenda Ford. I didn't know that name, but just because I didn't know it, I guessed at once who she was. The tall, pale, dark girl who was the only person in the house I didn't know by name. Ergo, my companion was the tall, pale, dark girl. It seemed rather intriguing to be there with her, shut in between a heavy curtain and a window, and I rather wondered whether she was enjoying the game we were all playing. Somehow she hadn't seemed to me to be one of the romping sort. I muttered one or two commonplace questions to her and had no answer. Smee is a game of silence. Smee and the person, or persons, who have found Smee are supposed to keep quiet and make it hard for the others. But there was nobody else about, and it occurred to me that she was playing the game a little too much to the letter. I spoke again and got no answer, and then I began to be annoyed. She was of that cold, superior type, which affects to despise men. She didn't like me, and she was sheltering behind the rules of the game for children to be discourteous. Well, if she didn't like sitting here with me, I certainly didn't want to be sitting there with her. I half turned from her and began to hope that we should be discovered without much more delay. Having discovered that I didn't like being there alone with her, it was queer how soon I found myself hating it, and that for a reason very different from the one which had at first whetted my annoyance. The girl I had met for the first time before dinner, and seen diagonally across the table, had a sort of cold charm about her, which had attracted while it had half-angered me. For the girl who was with me, imprisoned in the opaque darkness between the curtain and the window, I felt no attraction at all. It was so very much the reverse that I should have wondered at myself if, after the shock of the discovery that she had suddenly become repellent to me, I had had room in my mind for anything besides the consciousness that her close presence was an increasing horror to me. It came upon me just as quickly as I've muttered the words. My flesh suddenly shrank from her as you see a strip of gelatin shrink and wither before the heat of a fire. That feeling of something being wrong had come back to me, but multiplied to an extent which turned foreboding into actual terror. I firmly believed that I should have got up and run if I had not felt that at my first movement she would have derived my intention and compelled me to stay by some means of which I could not bear to think. The memory of having touched her bare arm made me wince and dry in my lips. I prayed that somebody else would come along soon. My prayer was answered. Late footfall sounded on the landing. Somebody on the other side of the curtain brushed against my knees. The curtain was drawn aside and a woman's hand fumbling in the darkness presently rested on my shoulder. Smee? Whispered a voice which I instantly recognized as Miss Gorman. Of course, she received no answer. She came and settled down beside me with a rustle and I can't describe the sense of relief that she brought me. It's Tony, isn't it? she whispered. Yes, I whispered back. You're not Smee, are you? No, she's on my other side. She reached a hand across me, and I heard one of her nails scratch the surface of a woman's silk gown. Hello, Smee. How are you? Who are you? Oh, is it against the rules to talk? Never mind, Tony, we'll break the rules. Do you know, Tony, this game is beginning to irk me a little... I hope they're not going to run it to death by playing it all evening. I'd like to play some game where we can all be together in the same room with a nice bright fire. Same here, I agreed fervently. Can't you suggest something when we go down? There's something rather uncanny in this particular amusement. I can't quite shed the delusion that there's somebody in this game who oughtn't to be in at all. That was just how I had been feeling, but I didn't say so. But for my part, the worst of my qualms were now gone. The arrival of Miss Gorman had dissipated them. We sat on talking, wondering from time to time when the rest of the party would arrive. I don't know how long elapsed before we heard the clatter of feet on the landing and young Reggie's voice shouting, ''Hello? Hello there. Anybody there?'' ''Yes,'' I answered. "Miss Gorman is with you?'' ''Yes.'' "'Well, you're a nice pair. You've both forfeited. "'We've all been waiting for you for hours.' "'Why, you haven't found Smee yet?' I objected. "'You haven't, you mean. I happen to have been Smee myself.' "'But Smee's here with us,' I cried. "'Yes,' agreed Mrs. Gorman. "'The curtain was stripped aside, and in that moment, "'we were blinking into the eye of Reggie's electric torch.' I looked at Miss Gorman, and then on my other side, between me and the wall, there was an empty space on the window seat. I stood up at once and wished I hadn't, for I found myself sick and dizzy. There was somebody there, I maintained, because I touched her. So did I, said Miss Gorman, in a voice which had lost its steadiness, and I don't see how she could have got up and gone without our knowing it. Reggie uttered a queer, shaken laugh. He, too, had had an unpleasant experience that evening. Somebody's been playing the goat, he remarked. Come down. We were not very popular when we arrived in the drawing room. Reggie rather tactlessly gave it out that he had found us sitting on a window seat behind a curtain. I taxed the tall, dark girl with having pretended to be Smee and afterwards slipping away. She denied it after which we settled down and played other games. Smee was done for the evening, and I, for one, was glad of it. Some long while later, during an interval, Sangston told me, if I wanted a drink, to go into the smoke room and help myself. I went, and he presently followed me. I could see he was rather peeved with me, and the reason came out during the following minute or two. It seemed that, in his opinion... "'If I must sit out and flirt with Miss Gorman, "'in circumstances which would have been considered "'highly compromising in his young days, "'I needn't do it during a round game "'and keep everybody waiting for us. "'But there was somebody else there,' I protested, "'somebody pretending to be Smee. "'I believe it was that tall dark girl, "'Miss Ford, although she denied it. "'She even whispered her name to me. "'Sangston stared at me and nearly dropped his glass.' Miss who? he shouted. Brenda Ford, she told me her name was. Sangston put down his glass and laid a hand on my shoulder. Look here, old man, he said. I don't mind a joke, but don't let it go too far. We don't want all the women in the house getting hysterical. Brenda Ford is the name of the girl who broke her neck on the stairs playing hide-and-seek here ten years ago. That's it for me, oddballs. I hope you enjoyed Smee and the goosebumps it gave you. I also hope you'll join me next year when the podcast returns for Season 5. I'm expecting to start recording sometime toward the end of January, and I have many more creeptastic and weird tales to tell. I hope you'll join me for that, and I wish you a wonderful haunted holiday. And do me a favor. Tell at least one ghost story this time of year let's bring that tradition back from the brink of extinction. All the best, friends, and, as always, stay spooky. The Identity Podcast is brought to you on a weekly basis by host Janine Mercer. This podcast is written, produced, and edited by Janine Mercer, unless otherwise stated, and the music is provided by GarageBand. Find The Odd Pod on Twitter and Instagram at IdentityPod, and on Facebook as The Identity Podcast. Email suggestions for future episodes to TheIdentityPodcast at gmail.com, and if you'd like a transcript of this episode, one will be available at theidentitypodcast.wordpress.com. Sme is available in Kindle and paperback formats on Amazon and is the property of Barrage Publishing.